0: Welcome to the Redemptions Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, RedemptionsHill.com.
1: Today, we're going to be in Ephesians 4, starting with verse 1. It says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience and God, we just thank you for your love this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you unite the body through the blood of your son, Jesus. God, we thank you for the hope and victory we can stand in this morning. Whether we feel it or not, God, would you send your spirit to help us fight for it, to grasp for it. Open our eyes to it, Lord. God, as the word comes forth, would you just open our hearts to hear it. To draw us and call us into deeper waters, Lord. Deep in our faith and our walk in you in obedience and in mercy and in worship, God. We love you. We praise your mighty name. Amen.
0: Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Just before we even kind of jump into the sermon, um, just let me prod for a moment with us uh, Sunday, Sunday morning. Like, How how do we come into this place before, before we even worry about the text? Do you come eager to worship the God who's done much for you? Do you come expecting Him to work? Uh, is there room in, in in your day, in your paradigm for uh, the Word to engage you in such a way that like things in your life get shifted or is it just... I hope there's some solid teaching. My, a big hope for my, of mine this year is that the way that we engage, the way that we come, the, the things that we would expect would, would maybe change, that we would be eager to worship, that we would uh, be those ready to have our worldview, uh, to have our life, uh, our priorities, our heart messed with a little bit. Uh, if not... I, I sometimes wonder what we're doing here, if there's no room uh, for anything to be moved around. So just kind of press that on the the front side of this, and I I hope eager expectation and eager uh, desire for God to work through His Word would be something that just kind of marks us as we uh, advance this year. So uh, let that land where it may, it lands on my heart. So if nothing else, it's for me, so... Uh, today, we'll cross over the halfway point in the book of Ephesians. Uh, we, we do it only as far as chapters in the book, not uh, length in our series. Uh, and length of the series, we're only about a third of the way through uh, because we're going to spend eight solid weeks in the sixth chapter uh, going into diving heavily into uh, the armor of God. So we're, we're just going to camp there uh, for a while. So, halfway through the book, only a third of the way through uh, our series. But what we do find today is we're going to cross over out of the first theme of the book of Ephesians, and we're going to move into uh, the second theme together today. So the first half of Ephesians was a big and beautiful look at the plan of God uh, to redeem all things. That's what we get from a distant view. We get to see the overarching work of God, his plan to redeem, how he's going to put all things back together when we look around the world and see so much brokenness and so much just that is off. God's plan to fix that is in Ephesians, how all things in heaven and on earth are at some point in the future going to come under the reign and rule of, of Christ. That's what the front side brings to us. Now, we have to sit in some of this for a moment and understand that, that this front side is the plan of redemption or the end of this book is going to be uh, really rough for us. The early chapters tell us about this plan, right? The, the gospel, uh, the story, the, the narrative of the Bible is kind of presented in the front side as well. Sin came into to creation, it wrecked everything. Paul liked to say, because of sin and what it did, we became uh, what is called spiritually dead. Uh, we were not alive in the way that we were meant to be and uh, the way that we are created to be. So we had no ability to wake ourselves from the problem. Uh, we had no way to fix ourselves, to bring ourselves out. We were in a terrible situation because of our sin, but God made a plan. That's, that's the point in chapter 2 uh, to, to save us. Uh, and that plan hung on Jesus. Jesus came and, uh, and carried out the plan. And the Holy Spirit is the one who brings the plan and administers it to us. He's the one that gives us faith to even believe in the redemption work of Jesus. But here it is, that great plan. How is God going to put all things together? How is he going to save us from the problem of our sin? Uh, another point that we have to remember is all of this plan of redeeming and fixing things is bigger than random individual sinners not going to hell. If you think that's what's going on here, you have way too small of a view of what's happening. This is not about saving sinners individually, meaning God saves them. But what we're going to find in the book of Ephesians is then he unites believers together into what is called uh, the body or the church. So we can think of it like this. Uh, In the Gospels, Jesus said over and over, if you look at me, you'll see God. Well, the sinners who are redeemed and brought together are supposed to be the ones that when the world looks at them, then they see Jesus. We're to be the ones who show the world what Jesus is like so that redemption can come. So you can think of it this way. Random sinners who receive Jesus are bound together into the church to then act in a way that reflects Jesus to the world around them, to invite the world around them into the church and be redeemed. Not random individuals, us together showing the world what Jesus is, is like. And this is kind of a beautiful plan when we look at it. The death of Christ is able to save even the worst sinner. Then the death of a sinner yields a church member. That's non-negotiable, actually. Uh, and then that church member is life is going to be one that involves Christ in such a way that it shows people who are still spiritually dead what Jesus is like. And God hangs his plan to redeem all things that are broken on that, which means he hangs his plan on us. I would not have wrote that plan, but he did. Lost sinners brought together to show the world what Jesus is like so they may be redeemed. Now, while showing the plan of redemption in the first three chapters of Ephesians, it also did this. It showed us our identity because of the gospel. That's where we got our series name, We Are. Uh, This is the, the who we are given by the gospel through God. This is all over the front side of the book, and we saw that. We are in Christ loved, assured. We are revived, saved, reconciled. We are revealed, strengthened, called, redeemed, chosen, predestined, sealed. We're given an an, uh, eternal inheritance. We're given access to God. We're given the Holy Spirit. We become workers of good. We're joined together. We're the dwelling place of God. We're the ones that the Holy Spirit makes a place in our heart for Jesus to live and rule inside of us. This is the who we are because of the gospel. This is what the gospel does in a person who has been saved. Now, what we need to know before we go to the the back side of the book, though, is the order of all of this is really important. Paul shows us this, a new identity is imparted to a believer. They're given new life before they're ever asked to do anything or be anything. You'll be frustrated if you don't get that. Before you know what being a Christian is, you're given this new identity. Another way to say it is we are told who we are in Christ before we've acted out that new identity. And really, we're told who we are in Christ before we even know what that identity means. Like, I don't know what happened but I'm new. i got to figure this thing out. That's kind of what Christianity looks like. So the back half of this book is going to teach us what does it look like to live out Christianity because the reality is we don't know, not on our own. The new identity who's been given to believers is ones that we really need help and mentorship and how to walk it out. We need to understand how to walk in uh, the realm of being brought to life in Christ. We need to walk in the giftings that have been given to us, but we need a lot of help with that. So imagine this, stories and examples and metaphors, they break down sometimes, but what does it look like for a sinner to be brought to Christ? Imagine you're you're taken uh, and you're placed in an airplane and then all of a sudden you are dropped off like parachuted into a foreign place, a place you know nothing about. A place that you don't know the language, you don't know the customs, you don't know the the geography. You are literally clueless about what it looks like to live in that place. That's what it's like to become a Christian. Why? Because grace hits you and it throws you into a place that you have no clue how to live there. Uh, You're glad that you're there. You don't want to run away. You don't want to escape, but you don't really know what you're supposed to do there. You need help figuring out the lay of the land and how to be a citizen in this place that you weren't even trying to go on your own. The back half of the book is really helping that. It's training to how to live in this new place and this new identity. It's training in how to live this identity out that has been given to us in Christ. Now, mind you, when you live out this identity, this training, when you begin to incorporate it and live it out, you're not given like a second set of prizes for doing so. Uh, and you also don't have your blessings removed from you if you don't do it. It is to train you in how to walk in what is already clearly yours. The order of operation is super important there. Uh, Why is that important, though? If you think of the things in the coming chapters as ways you have to earn something from God, you will be literally miserable. If you keep trying to earn what has already been given to you, you're going to feel like a failure over and over and over instead of finding joy in what Christ has already done. That's why Paul kind of tells us what he did in chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us uh, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. The blessings are already in place. They're already given if you are in Christ, but we will have to learn to live in the tension to not hide from it, but face it of accepting that we've been given uh, this identity in Jesus already, but we're still going to kind of have to figure out what it means to walk in the middle of it. That's a hard place for us to be. Uh, But this text will help us quite a bit, or this book will help us quite a bit. So as we're learning to live out this new identity that we're a little bit unsure of, that's why Paul starts this way in chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, remember, I'm teaching you how to live in what's already yours if you're a believer. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Front side, hey, it's important for you to learn how to do this. And that one voice, this is the hinge of everything. The the theme changes all of a sudden. We've shifted from theology to practicality, from exposition to exhortation. And and now this move, though, it's Paul's signature move, right? It's his MO. It's his thing. That same move happens in Romans chapter 12. It also happens in Colossians uh, chapter 3. So because this move is something that Paul likes to do— This is the blessing of Christ. This is what it looks like. Because we already know that and he does it in other places, we can kind of understand that between chapter 3 and 4, Paul just didn't get really angry. He's like, well, you make me mad, so do all of this now. This is just his thing. This is how he teaches us to walk it out. And I I appreciate his angle in at the beginning uh, and really before he gets into the practical focus, I, I appreciate the way that he does that because at times when we're told things about our lives, it can be hard. Right, I don't know about you, but when you're told when someone walks up and says, like, hey, you you should probably do this, or or you should probably focus on this, or you should probably be this or pay attention to this. At times we could possibly get a little bit frustrated at that. We could get a little bit proud about that, bulge our chests out, and, and we'll just say, like, well, who do you think you are telling me that? Who do you think you are messing with, with my life and messing with my business? Who, who are you bossing me around? And then we'll take kind of the, the mental sniper rifle out and we'll begin to shoot at anything that we see in them. Oh, yeah? Well, you're going to tell me I need to focus that? But I've invited more people to church than you have. You, you, uh, you volunteer in the older kids' class, but I'm in the nursery. Those kids scream for an hour, so I'm definitely better than you are, right? You, you begin to point out the things that you think that you're better than the other person about, but... But the brilliant part about Paul doing this is he's already shared the gospel with us clearly. And then he says, before I ask anything of you, before I say anything, before I come to you kindly and begin to say, hey, this is how you walk it out, just remember I'm the guy in jail. The whole who do you think you are thing, it doesn't work for him. It's like I'm the, I'm the guy in prison for Jesus. Okay. Okay right? You, you can't say very much to that, but the beautiful that, thing of that is he's not trying to be a jerk there. Paul isn't going to ask us to be anything or focus on anything that he hasn't been actively doing himself. He's only going to present obedience to us in ways that he was willing to do it himself. Paul's continual line all over the New Testament is, is kind of this, follow me as I follow Christ, Don't follow me because I'm the best. Follow me because I am following Jesus. Follow me to the extent that I follow Jesus. If you want a hint, that's discipleship. Do you want to know how to disciple someone? Tell them that. Follow me like I follow Jesus. And he's going to take an aim of asking us this. Would you be in such a place to where you'd follow me like I'm following Jesus, but also that you would follow Jesus wherever he asks you to go? Would you do that? No matter where, no matter how, no matter how much sense it makes to you, will you get to the place that you trust the King so much that no matter what He asks of you, not out of fear, but out of love and trust, you'd say, yes, I'll go. We should sit in that for a moment. Again, like the opening when I was trying to talk to you, is there, is there room this morning for the Spirit to speak to you? Because what if we begin to ask this about what God is asking from us? Maybe there's something that God has been calling you to do by His Spirit recently in the past, something you've been rejecting or dismissing or pushing off. Has has God asked you to pursue something or laid something on your heart that terrifies you uh, and and you've just kind of, uh, because of that, suppressed it and just kind of turned the other way as if you, you can't see it? Maybe God is asking you to boldly share something with a person who just intimidates the daylights out of you. Does that happen for any of you? Maybe he's asking you to love someone or reach out to someone or befriend someone who who just makes you feel super, super awkward. Maybe he's asking you to do something that seems insane in your neighborhood and you're just afraid of what the the fallout could be. Maybe he's asking you to take a step that feels impossible right now. Maybe he's saying, trust me, follow me, see me, proclaim me. And you're like, no, because it scares me. If he's done that, here's what we need to understand. The same Jesus who asked those things of you is the same Jesus who's not in the grave anymore. We have to wrap our minds around that. We don't serve a dead figurehead or a mythical uh, creature who's not real. We serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who's conquered death, snatched you out of a hole of sin that you could never get out of on your own, called out to you, let there be life, and you woke up. The same God who planned that, the same Jesus who did that, the same Spirit who delivered that wants to speak to you that has happened and you've ignored it or been scared of it, let me, let me press further and just speak Scripture over that. Jesus told us these things that are hard to wrap our minds around in the Gospels, and this is one that's been on my mind a lot lately. He says those who fight to keep their life will lose it. told us this, the harder that you try and and keep things your way, the harder you try and keep life the way that you want it, the harder you try and do your thing and and your way and and your life, the harder you do that, the more it's going to slip away. But those who would fight to to keep their life will lose it, but those who will lose their life for my sake, those who would trust me, those who would follow me, the, the ones who would walk out even when it makes literally no sense, it is in that place that you will find life. It is only trusting me even when you literally cannot figure out how in the world that will go well. That's the place, that's the moment that we find kingdom life. That we find peace, that we find what we're meant to really is trusting and further and further and further walking out to obey the Savior. Maybe you're in a place where you're like, no, there's nothing I've been rejecting. Have you been asking God what he wants from you though? I wonder how many times we just assume, and we just don't ever slow down to go, hey, what would you have me do? Again, you may ask, right, if you're you're a cynic, I, I am in many ways. Well, how exactly do you know that God wants to speak to us? That's all good and fine, what you're saying, but how do you actually know? Well, it's not difficult from the beginning of Ephesians. We already know that we're saved for something. Remember good works that God planned beforehand? And Paul was quick to say we're saved for good works that God is able to plan beforehand and God is able to do abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine. So anything that we could wrap our mind around as far as the good works that we're called to is not big enough. It it doesn't encompass it. So if there's this amazing list of beautiful things that God has called us to be a part of, Bigger things than than we could ever find on our own. Bigger things than just show up and fulfill a religious routine. If if that's really true, then God's probably going to have to lead us to those things by telling us what they are. Like a shepherd leads his sheep, God's going to have to lead us to good works. But we will have to ask him and trust him enough to walk in them. Part of that involves slowing down the pace of our life enough to even hear if he's asking anything. If I could be as open and honest as possible about us at Redemption's Hill, as I've just tried to analyze the last couple of years for us, I think for a number of reasons over the last two years, many of us have kind of fell asleep to God's voice. Burnout. Church planting's hard. Some of you have worked your tail off. Burnout comes. For many of us, I, I think it's just kids. We literally don't know how to come out the other side. We're still in the fetal position, just wanting sleep, but we're getting sleep now and don't know how to move. For some, it's suffering, and, and a number of things. I think for many of us, just life has happened, and it suppressed the voice of God in our lives. That causes a number of things to happen, but over the past couple months, or I would actually say probably two months, he's waking some out of that, and I believe strongly that he's calling others out of it as well, even right now. What does he want? For you to trust him. Right, walk out on the water. Trust me, in deeper places than you can stand. If your faith only, uh, if you only need uh, God to save you, but the things that you're doing in your life, you have completely on your own. You're not walking in the works that He has for you. What if God's hand began to work and do amazing things again? What if we asked Him? What if we heard from Him? And what if we just gave Him a blank check that said, "I'll do whatever"? Man, that could be a beautiful thing. I'm hungry for it. I hope you are. So Paul says in the opening verse, I urge you, I implore you, I call you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been given. The saying has to be plumbed further or else we'll walk into maybe legalism here. When our ears hear worthy, we can tend to hear merit. Okay, he says earn it. Make sure you're not a bad investment pay it off. That's not what he's actually saying. The Greek word translated into worthy in this text is from a root word that we're not digging into the Greek to sound smart. We're digging into it because we have to here. The root word refers to weight, more specifically being of equal weight as something else. Have you ever heard something and your response is, that's heavy. That's kind of what they're talking about here. Follow me. He's urging us to live a life that is heavy, that is weighty. A a life that has equal weight uh, or heft as the blessings that you have been given. If you're lost, think of it this way. Let's compare and contrast a life. The gospel is amazing, right? See it on the front side of the book. Let's compare on this side. A life has been pulled out of darkness and sin. Shame covered, redeemed, called beautiful, called clean, called holy, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, has an eternal inheritance including defeating death, has been saved to mind-blowing good works that God has prepared Hand that same God that can do exponentially more than you could ever dream of, right? We have that on this side. And then let's put on this side. That same Christian goes to church on Sunday. Reads the Bible in the morning sometimes. Maybe in January when they start the Bible reading thing. Has a full-time job. Eats out once a week because that's all that Dave Ramsey allows. There's a stark contrast in those two things, isn't there? Do they feel almost incompatible with weight? Like an outsider could look at those things and not judge them, but just go like, Seems off. See, if a life has those amazing blessings given to it, if all of that is true, and yet that life is almost painfully ordinary and boring afterwards, maybe this is a better way to say it because boring could could walk us into a, a bad place. If a life is saturated with the supernatural in that the Holy Spirit comes and gives that person a brand new heart, there was a heart of stone, and they're given a brand new heart and redemption, And yet thereafter, the supernatural or amazing uh, uh, never happens in their life. They needed the Spirit to come in. They literally don't ever need it afterwards. If you look at the balance of those things, you go like, they seem off. One of those things isn't like the other. One of them is just like weightier and bigger than the other. This is what he's talking about. What he's urging us to do is he's saying, hey, don't fall asleep. And don't buy into the lie that your life doesn't mean anything. I wonder if some of us really, truly want amazing things to happen in the church. We just literally don't think that there's any chance they could happen through us. Paul's saying, hey, don't believe that God doesn't have amazing things for you to take part in if you're a believer. And it's not because of you, it's because of him. Don't believe that big stuff is only reserved to to pastors and people not like you or extroverts or anything else. All of those qualifiers, that needs to be this other person. All of those are removed. Are you in Christ? Yes, then there's great big things that you are called to be a part of. I wonder if if some of the enemy's greatest tricks are not necessarily making us fall on our face morally, but just forgetting that we're sons and daughters who are called to be the light of the world, who are called, each and every one of us, if you are son or daughter of God, you are called to be a part of pushing back darkness. You're called to be one who sees in certain times, in certain places, the light of the gospel change things. You are. You, if you are in the Christ, are the one who has the same power that rose Christ from the dead living inside of you, ready to come out in the context that you live in. I believe that Paul is teaching us that we have not fully wrapped our minds around the fact that God is not done working. And even more so, he's not done working, and we're a part of his plan to continue working. So Paul would say, listen to him, trust him, and don't walk as if God doesn't want to speak and lead you. Live a life that is big and weighty and meaningful, not in you, but meaningful in Jesus. No matter where it leads you, or how crazy it may seem, here's the reality: If God presses things on you, and your your default position is I, I just can't see how that would work. You're probably not meant to. That doesn't require faith. You may hear this again. I think you know I, I, I don't know if I believe any of that, but even if I did, where would I start? If I wanted to listen and I wanted to, uh, to, to be a part of, of great works that God has planned and I wanted to be a part of pushing back darkness and showing the world the gospel of Jesus, where in the world would I even start? Well, Paul writes the entire second half of the book to devote to that. That's the exact reason he moves from theology to practice. So, hey, let me help you. It's overwhelming to try and only picture the end instead of see some stuff that we can kind of walk in and focus on. The first thing Paul teaches, uh, we really cannot miss uh, the very first sentence of the text. If we think of it just as an introductory detail or or a cute thing that that Paul puts in there, we're going to miss a large part of beginning to, to walk in this. A large hinge, it really comes in this first statement, I, a prisoner for the Lord. What does it look like to listen and trust and obey? It looks like adopting that statement, I, a prisoner of the Lord. Paul stopped seeing his life as if it was only his alone. The Holy Spirit had showed him it was no longer he who lived, but Christ who lived inside of him. And if your life becomes something that Christ gets to live through powerfully, then that means in certain ways you are also a prisoner of Christ. Paul didn't mean this in a bad or derogatory way, though. Prisoner, again, comes from a root word that means tie or bind. So think less jail cell and more. Um, think less jail cell and punishment and and, uh, and harshness over top of you, and think more of because I'm tied to Jesus, my life gets influenced by. Him. But that's what a prisoner of Christ looks. I'm tied to him. He speaks into things, and he gets to make some calls. While saying, "I is one bound to Christ." And led by him, urge you to live a weighty and substantial life that lets him lead you as well. There's a moment worth just pressing even further. Would you be would you be humble enough to let me ask the question? And I can guarantee you I've asked it of myself this week. I wonder if you've never actually submitted to Christ in a way that says, I am yours. It's one thing to go like, I have sin and I need you to take care of that for me. Take the bill. That's one thing. But what about a life that says, I actually, like, thank you for taking the bill. I'm yours, do what you will. Have you ever submitted to Jesus in a way that gives him actual control? And says, let's go wherever you see fit. I'm sure glad you said what you said before you ascended that you're never going to leave me, though, because this is really scary. Do what you will, I trust you. Have you ever uttered that? Do you pray that? Maybe you submit to Jesus in a way that looks more like a driver's education car. You've seen those? One side, you got the wheel, you got the brakes, you got the gas, and the other side, you have the old oh, crap controls. Right? That little kid with pimples, he starts going the wrong direction mash the brakes. I wonder if our faiths look a a whole lot more like that than Jesus, tell me what you want to do. Where it says, hey, I'll give you control. I'll do what you want as long as you don't go where I don't want you to. I'll let you lead me as long as you do whatever I want. You follow Jesus in a wheel in a way that snatches back the wheel like you're taking it from a 15-year-old's hands. The problem is Jesus is not a 15-year-old, and that type of submission is not actually submission. And that's the whole point of the rich young ruler story in the gospels. There's a, a guy who walks up to Jesus and he says, "Hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life?" All right, straight up, what do I got to do to be saved?" What do you want from me? And he gets bothered, and he ends up walking away through the conversation. When Jesus reveals the answer, which is you don't just need to do good things, but you need to trust me with everything. The rich young ruler is like, I don't. That's too much. I don't. I don't think I can do that. Right? He was fine with being religious. He was fine with following rules. He was fine with moral stuff. He was, he was fine with moral implications of his life. There were, there were literal things that he had worked really hard towards. But he drew a line in his heart and says, there are certain areas that you just need to leave alone. There are certain things that he refused to turn over to the control of King Jesus. And this is the opposite of what it means to repent and believe. Belief says, tell me what you want from me. Not just take the bill. And that story is a heartbreaking one, though. You can almost see the young guy, right, sitting there just thinking, like, "What must I do? I've worked so hard. I keep control, give you control. Even if it takes me into a scary spot, and I've worked really hard, I've got some nice stuff. I mean, I have a schedule and it's working well. He he found Jesus not to be worthy. In the words of Paul, as as he's saying worthy and weighed out, he weighed out the options and, and found out that his life could be weightier, more substantial, and better on his own. So he walked away. Maybe you've been doing that. Maybe you've always done that. If that's the case. I think that we could say that Jesus, with certainty, is calling you to trust Him, to follow Him, to repent today, follow Him right now, not to brush it off. If that's weighing on your heart and there's something going on now, can I just tell you that's Jesus pursuing you? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, pursuing your heart and asking you to believe in Him in a way that actually follows Him. If that lands on you, can I urge you today, don't leave without coming to talk to me. Let me pray with you. Let someone pray with you. Celebrate the fact that you're hearing Jesus and deciding to follow him in a, a new way or maybe just a renewed way. We've got to get better at accepting victories and celebrating belief and celebrating repentance rather than just kind of in and out i press further, too, because you may be shocked. You may have been a Christian all of your m- life. You may have been with us forever, and all of a sudden this lands on you in a heavy way, and God is re- revealing himself in a deeper way. Can I just press into that a little bit? There, there can be feelings of shame. Well, I don't want to tell him that I haven't done that. Don't, don't let that cause you not to trust Jesus. Let him guide you and your faith in a new way. In all of our time together, we have covered verse one. Sorry, we got five more. It's fine. Paul reminds us that we are God's plan to be used so redemption may spread. That we is all. We is not me, it's not some, it's not a few. All who are in Christ are a part of the plan. He reminds us that we are woven together into the church, and that church will be the bride that shows off the radiance of Jesus. And through that bride, the gospel will spread. He seems to point out, though, we will not live weighty or substantial lives in Christ. That see beautiful things happen, though, if we forget about this front side will tell us if we forget about unity. This front side should cause us all to lament and repent, really. In our day, we see church split after church split happen. We have Christians who think of themselves as theological watchdogs. We have professing believers who degrade and knock everything they see down. Not to mention the churches become really well known for hurting each other. And when we participate in any of this, we become a paradox. A living contradiction, we project a false gospel, meaning we tell the world something about Jesus that isn't true. Hear me, the church is meant to declare the beauty of Jesus, and yet, for a long time, churches all over, including ourselves in ways, have shown something else. Paul says, relentlessly pursue unity to live this weighty life that sees Jesus be big. There's three very practical things that he tells us are, are necessary to pursue unity. He says this, we have to be uh, those who are like the one who has called us, who's like, who are like Christ. We are to be humble, gentle, and patient. Three simple characteristics that we should, na- that we should nurture, but we are only able to nurture them to the extent That together we look at Jesus together. Which means, here, here it is if you have a problem being humble or gentle or patient, you will not ever grow in any of those things by trying hard to be them. At least not for a long time, you won't. We grow in those things by intentionally looking at Jesus and asking Him to engage in those things. We'll define them shortly or quickly to be humble. To be humble does not mean to be shy or hate yourself or think you suck at everything. It means that you don't just live for yourself, but you live also for the good of others. That's what humility is. It means that we think of others and take their well-being into account even when we're really tired. Instead of just focusing on what we want or what we feel entitled to in life, this is... um, this is true for how we treat people outside of the church, but it is especially true for how we treat each other. That's why the C.S. Lewis quote in Mere Christianity is so often quoted. I've always been looking for a chance to rip it off, so here it goes. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. I'm so humble. I'm terrible at this. I'm terrible at this. I'm terrible at this. That's not humility. We're only able to think of ourselves less when we experience Jesus more. We see through fresh eyes how we have benefited through his humility, right? Humility is not only thinking of yourself. Jesus was not covering his own sin on the cross. He was covering ours. He was thinking outside of himself. He was thinking of others. It's only when we see this and we understand we only benefited by his loving humility towards us and we say, oh God, help me be more like that and begins to rub off. That's the only way humility grows. To be gentle It means to be meek. Meekness is not a synonym for weakness, though. To be gentle is to restrain the full force of your power instead of letting it go. There's a whole lot in the Proverbs about this. Our culture is really good at just short fuse, let it fly, got them. That's not gentleness. Gentleness. Gentleness is to restrain that full force and use precision instead of swing a big hammer all the time. It's to realize that many people need compassion to grow and advance, and that being hard and harsh with them is not the right place sometimes when you could love them. So to be gentle is to be someone who leads by example and encourages other people. The same thing that Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ that regular thing, inviting other people instead of, Man, let me tell you all the ways that you're terrible. Hey, will you come follow me how I'm following Jesus? Instead of demanding people to grow and becoming bitter with them when they don't. See, just like humility, this gentleness only comes when you look at Jesus, though. It only comes when you experience his gentleness, knowing over and over and over how many times you fall on your face If there's anyone that could unload with some power, it's him, and he doesn't. It's only when we just kind of marinate in that and sit in that and ask him to help apply that to us. It's only then when we become those who are gentle. The last one is patient. There's no original Greek word to get us out of it. (coughs) Grow and long suffering with other people. That's patience. So often we get really frustrated with other people's rate of growth and we assume that they just don't care. At least not as much as I do. When the reality is sometimes they don't care. Sometimes life is just really hard. See, this need for patience comes largely when we begin to feel as, as though other believers around us are all lazy and unreliable. See, if a fellow believer is lagging behind, we should look to love and gospel at the issue instead of go irritated with them or cold towards them. Guys, let's just be honest. We need that one. Any issue we have or others have requires patient gospeling over impatient harshness. Just like the others, though, none of this comes without looking at Jesus for it. It's only when we realize that it is finished through his work on the cross and not ours or the person next to us's work that we can be patient with their spiritual growth. Then we can love them instead of hurt them because they disappoint us. I don't have time to sit in it for a long time. I just thought about a couple of these. Maybe they're helpful, maybe they're not. Signs that maybe, uh, or indicators that maybe there's an issue in some of these areas with Humility there's something down deep inside that just kind of thinks nobody else can do anything great in the church. It's a humility problem. No one else can lead, no one else can speak, no one else can evangelize, nobody. Not like me. That's humility. The other one may surprise you. A lack of mission is a humility issue. Just so let that one sit with or whatever force it needs to. We can hide behind so long, I just don't know the answers, and I don't know what to say, and I don't know how to interact. Mission is thinking of those who are lost and reaching out to them with Jesus. So if mission is not happening, it's a sign that we've turned in on ourselves, and we'd just rather do our own thing. I, I just really need to get my stuff done. You can take care of yourself. A lack of mission boils down massively to Humility. Gentleness, if you're married or have kids, a lack of gentleness in life most often probably manifests itself with how you treat them. The people closest to you. If you let the monster out around your family all the time, my like, God, oh, just, just overreacted a little bit. If you slam people about their sin over loving them, there's probably a gentleness issue there. Patience. If right now just everyone here annoys you, and you can highlight so many weaknesses about them, but haven't ever told them about any of their strengths, there's a patience issue there, and God wants to deal with it. Again, not to take or give you salvation, but help you walk in it. You cannot walk impatient towards the other people around you in unity. So when we look to Jesus and pay attention to his character, and how it changes us. And through that, we take stock of our character, only through looking at Him, and ask Him to help us with our humility, gentleness, and patience. It's only there that we can become those who truly bear with one another in love. And it's only when we do those things that we will be eager to maintain unity in the Spirit. Right? Because He gives us those things, uh, those three traits, and He says those lead to these other things. It's only when we take stock of those through looking at Jesus. Paul's opening words are sharp, but they're needed. And if we read between the lines, this is what we will see. Our lives will never be worthy or weighty if we are not united. We will not be able to see amazing things happen in our context if we're too busy fighting each other and being angry at everyone. This is why he goes then to verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We're a part of one body, one church. There's kind of two ways to think about the universal church, anyone saved in any place ever, but then also our local Redemption's Hill body. There's one Holy Spirit. There is one hope of the gospel that belongs to one Lord that created one faith and gave us one baptism under one Father. So he's using repetition to lay down theological gold, but he's also doing it to make a big point. How can all of those things be one? How can all of that stuff be God's and be united And how can the church be the radiance of Jesus himself if they're divided and many and fighting all the time? We play a part in fighting and contending for unity. Here's the hard part. You don't become united on accident. You become united by looking at Jesus together with other people, even when you're frustrated. To the level that we give Jesus control and look at him will be the level that we're eager to maintain the unity of the body. Just at a basic level, and I think we can get this, don't fight each other, fight your sin. Things work just so much better that way, and you'll probably be happier. As we land the plane today, my hope is this for us, church that all of us here, everyone here, would now and in the moments of worship just ask God to help you trust Him more. I literally do not care at what spot you're at that we would all do it together though. If you're not a believer, that means I have prayed this week and eagerly hope that right now, in today, in this service, that you would just say, God, I am a sinner in need of you and I can't get out of it. Help me understand how to walk in that. My hope is that your trust would look like that. I just tell you, if you're kind of at this, boy, this spot of like analyzing and, and, and weighing things and trying to make sense of things or clean yourselves up, those scales will never work out. Just, just dive in. I'd love to pray with you about that if you need. But if you followed Christ as long as you can remember, now my hope is still the same for you. It's the same hope that I have for myself that you would today ask Jesus to help you trust him more. I mean, he's done a good work, but he's not done. And the reality of all this, this means that some of us need to, in worship, come and confess to God, hey, I've been avoiding you. He's like, oh, really? might mean that there's some specific things that just won't leave your heart that you need to just talk to God about today. Then walk out and begin to say, I really don't get it, but I'm going to try. It may mean that God's showing you a lack of humbleness and gentleness and patience, and today he wants access to your heart to change that. No matter what the case is, I pray that God would work in you this morning. Here's the beautiful thing though, when you, when you ask him to help you trust him more or to confront humbleness or any of those things, then we will come to the table later and we'll take and no matter if your humbleness has been horrible and if you've been ignoring God, you can come to the table and say, this, this bread and this cup is still for me. He knew I was going to do it and he still died. And you can come and you can take and you can be refreshed and you can walk out going, help me to live differently. Help me to love differently. Help me to trust you more. And he's proven that he is trustworthy and good. Man, you guys can come back up. There's a quote by Ravi Zacharias that was on my mind today or this week. He says, religion is following a group or a set of beliefs or actions while Christianity is actually following Jesus. Here's the hope, that we would follow Jesus together. We're not a church because we have a building to gather in. We're a church because we're a group of people that follows Jesus together. I pray that we would lean into the second one, going, hey, just tell me what you want. Tell me where you want me to go. Tell me who you want me to love. What a beautiful picture to just imagine what it could be like. You think, man, I just don't know, even if I asked him to do that, that he would put anything on my heart and try it. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23 through 26 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took, bl- took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We'll play four songs. We'll have a time to worship at any point you can come up and take even if you're not a member or you're new here. My hope is that you would find encouragement, that you would find refreshment at the table but that you would also find a call to trust Jesus more. He's worth our trust. Would you stand and pray with me? God, you're good and you're kind. We ask for your help. Spirit, help us to trust you, to trust God. I pray in all the areas where we have just been on autopilot or moving forward or distracted that we would begin just to hear your voice again. Spirit, would you speak? Now we repent for the ways that we have ignored you. We repent for the ways that we have made our heart accessible to a million things and not the sun. I pray, Lord, that you would come and that you would fix that today. And Draw us near. I pray in trusting you that we wouldn't find labor, that we would find rest and we would find excitement. That in just the smallest mundane steps of trust that you would encourage our heart. You would help us recapture a vision of seeing others know you and making much of Jesus. Now we pray that today. Holy Spirit, come and work. Lead us to you. Lead us to the throne. Lead us to repentance where needed, but help us walk out this beautiful identity we've been given. Be glorified, Father. We love you. Amen.